Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hi there, welcome to God's Planning on this, the sixth Sunday of Easter. I am Father Jacob Burton Jancic, and I am joined by Father Gregory Pine, uh, sitting here in my office mm. on this lovely day. Um, as has been our custom the past, I don't know, couple thousands, months now, thousands of weeks, years and years, hundreds of weeks. Uh, we are are bringing to you this Sunday bonus episode, um, this Lexio Divina on the Sunday readings. Uh, it seems perhaps that churches are slowly opening in very qualified ways in various parts of the country, but. By and large, a lot of us, a lot of you are still restricted in your ability to get to Mass. So, um, yeah, as we've said before, we hope that these uh, Lexios, Lexios, Lexios are a way for you to sort of dive into the Sunday readings, to prepare for spiritual communion, um, to spend some time with our Lord and the Word of God. Um, so as we as we get into uh, this Sunday's readings, we'll, we'll start off by praying this Sunday's Collect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Grant, Almighty God, that we may celebrate with heartfelt devotion these days of joy, which we keep in honor of the risen Lord, and that what we relive in remembrance we may always hold to in what we do. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. To our first reading. Let's do it. This is taken from the Acts of the Apostles. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Christ to them. With one accord, the crowds paid attention to what was said by Philip when they heard it and saw the signs he was doing. For unclean spirits, crying out in a loud voice, came out of many possessed people, and many paralyzed or crippled people were cured. There was great joy in that city. Now, when the disciples in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who went down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for it had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had, only been they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's interesting to note, as we've been reading through the Acts of the, Acts of the Apostles, as the, the early church is kind of um, coming together, becoming a, a visible thing. Um, how how we have the apostles, particularly in Peter and Peter's preaching at the beginning of Acts, and then the, the description of these communities of of their praying together, of their selling their their goods so as to be one one community. Um, as as more men are ordained to the to the um, to the clerical state, and more people are baptized. How in each of these moments. Um, we see the life of Christ alive. It's a real imitatio Christi, an imitation of Christ, um, which is beautiful in many ways um, because we see that it's not that the church and the life of the church and the life of the faithful within the church is not something that's constructed, you know, centuries later in kind of medieval circumstances or hundreds of years later by the church fathers, but really is, is the fruit of the work of the Spirit in the days really following the death and resurrection of Christ. And we see this in this first reading, particularly in, in the, in the work of Philip um, going to Samaria, um, just as Christ went to Samaria, I, I think almost every homily I've heard about either the woman at the well or the healing of the 10 lepers, both of which um, 
Christ heals or, you know, our, it, it, Christ works with, that's kind of a weird way to say it, but works with Samaritans. I think in every homily or kind of conversation about that, there's always kind of a preface about the relationship between Samaritans and Jews and how they simply were, were not friends by, by any means. I mean, great hostility between the two people. So um, the fact that Christ went to the Samaritans, the woman at the well was a Samaritan, the story that we read in John 4, the healing of the 10 Samaritan lepers in Luke 17, um, that, that, that strife between a Jewish man and a Samaritan people highlight sort of the, the breadth of Christ's, uh, of Christ's ministry and Christ's mercy and the invitation to be, to be a Christian. So in the same way, Philip goes to Samaria too. Um, he, he imitates the sort of breath of Christ's mercy. Um, and in that, we were given sort of a glimpse into the reality of, of the transformative power of the gospel. Um, it, it kind of, I don't know, might be a strange way to kind of describe it, but that the gospel kind of transcends um, kind of human hostilities and human divides and these sorts of things and really does gather, um, the truth of the gospel really does gather one in, into one, into one body, into the body of Christ. Um, something here too that I think is, is important for us to recognize in the work of Philip, in the work of the disciples, in, the, in this sort of coalescing of the church is that um, in virtue of our baptism, we're given the same gifts to preach Christ, the same ability to preach to preach Christ. And this often, I think, in my own thought, and perhaps for your own thought, ought to beg the question of, uh, well, to whom are we preaching? And how are we preaching? Um, it's easy to sort of talk about our Lord and witness to our Lord in comfortable settings, you know, and in like the campus ministry center or within our church or within um, friends that, that share the faith but much harder to do so in places that are uncomfortable, whether that be amongst family that don't believe or friends that don't believe or on campus or in work. Um, and I'm not saying we need to kind of construct like a soapbox and preach on the street corner, but the witness that we, that we bear, and that kind of rolls into that second question of, well, how do we preach? Um, I think off that it's kind of a, a cliche, but actions speak louder than words. So um, the way in which we live, the way in which we behave redounds to the glory of God. Um, and the spirit gives us the ability, uses us in the best kind of way as instruments to do that, even in hostile or less than friendly kind of territories. Yeah. I think, um, you know, oftentimes in those homilies about which you spoke, the reasons for which, you know, said strife exists are, are described maybe in more or less detail, but in short, it's, you know, what we're talking about here basically is the Jews, the Judites. Um, are descendants of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the Samaritans are kind of mixed blood descendants of the 10 northern tribes, which had been cut off from Judah uh, in 722 by the Assyrian invasion. And the Assyrians deported a lot of them, uh, but those who remained, they intermarried with them. And as a result of which their blood became kind of in the Jewish understanding, adulterated. And so while there are still some commonalities, namely, you know, they still observe certain aspects of Jewish religion, you know, they read from the Torah, uh, for instance, there is a sense in which those who have close, been closest and fallen most far become, in fact, the worst. You know, the corruption of the best is the worst, said Aristotle. And so, like, the, the Jews feel a particular enmity to the Samaritans. And like you said, the fact of uh, this particular preacher's drawing close, um, like, signifies how, in a certain sense, the new covenant goes beyond the old. 
So when we talk about the old covenant, we talk about it as, um, you know, it's, it's associated with the law, right? So it's, it's encapsulated in the Torah in peculiar fashion, but it's also associated with the laws, which are given in Exodus, Leviticus, and in uh, Deuteronomy. Um, you know, like we have these codes, right? The covenant code, the holiness code, the Deuteronomic code. And altogether, you know, you have these, these many different laws, like 613 laws, I want to say, which govern every aspect of Jewish life. Um, and they're primarily concerned with morality and then with ceremony, like ritual purity and worship, and then with judicial things, like so how to kind of settle petty court cases among different members of a family or a clan or a tribe. Um, but they're, they're concerned with delimiting the bounds of sanctity, delimiting the bounds of holiness. But where the old law fails is that it can't make you holy, right? Uh, for that, we need grace. And you see the potency of grace in this particular scene uh, because it's associated with baptism, the onrushing of the Holy Spirit, which we hear at the end of the passage with the laying out of hands. Um, so what's peculiar about the new covenant is that it's principally associated with the pouring of the Holy Spirit into the heart of the individual recipient, which gives him or her the capacity to cry out, Abba, Father, right? To truly be an adopted son and daughter of God, to have sin blotted out and to be justified, to be made good. And so you see like the potency of the gift of grace of the Christ life at work within, um, which is mediated through the preaching of the deacons, which we just talked about them last week. You know, all these different folks like Stephen and Philip and Nicanor and Parmenas and Timon and et cetera. Um, and it was said that they were going to help serve a table, right? And that they're going to help with the distribution of alms. And here, what do we see them doing? They're preaching and baptizing, right? So they're doing what the presbyters do, because such is the nature uh, of the grace of God that it impels them to the communication of divine life. So wild times in the early church, things are heating up. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> they are. No, I would put it, but you know, it's one way to say it. It's all be me. Perfect. All right. Moving on then to our second reading. It's, uh, we take it from the first letter of St. Peter. Beloved, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope, but do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who defame your good conduct in Christ may themselves be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be the will of God, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, the line that we have here uh, from 1 Peter 3, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Um, this is a classic line, and it's one that we hear often associated with just like basic Christian witness. Um, so in recent years, there has been a, a great emphasis placed in the life of the church on the kind of like apostate, apostolate more generally, or um, what one might associate with like confirmation, the character that imparts the grace that it gives to be a public witness, right? That one is fortified by virtue of his Christian initiation for spiritual soldiery, um, and that as a result of which we are to conduct ourselves as mature Christians and therefore capable of begetting the Christian life in others. Um, but with a positive precept, you know, like preach the gospel, like when are we to do it? Because with the negative precepts, they bind always and everywhere, semper et pro semper. So I know that when I'm told thou shalt not kill, I shouldn't, I shouldn't kill anywhere or ever, you know, unless it becomes necessary. Uh, just kidding. All right. So I shouldn't kill anywhere 
or in any circumstance. It's just, it binds, right? It binds semper pro semper. But with a positive precept, it always binds. Um, but it's not that I have to always be proclaiming the glory of God and testifying to his mercy uh, in like an active vocal way, right? So I'm going to sleep. I'm going to eat. I've been told that I shouldn't talk with my mouth open. Excuse me. I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't talk with my mouth full, right? So it seems that I probably shouldn't uh, give vocal witness to, you know, the grace of Jesus Christ, at least in, you know, like a, a preaching kind of way. So, so like, when am I supposed to do it? Now, for some, it's your vocation. And so it's, it's kind of delimited by the bounds of your state in life, right? So if one is a priest, he ought to preach at mass, right? But he also ought to preach at 40 hours. He ought to give counsel and direction. He ought to give encouragement and confession. You know, it's like there's a lot of situations that call for it um, very clearly, manifestly. Um, but say that you are right now like at home and you have very limited contact and you're only talking to people on Zoom. And when you do go out, you're kind of like afraid of people as to whether or not they're wearing a mask or whether you're wearing a mask or how many like minutes you should spend in Dunkin' Donuts before you start going crazy about the risk of contagion, things like that. Okay. So like when you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, St. Thomas has this category where he talks about uh, preparation of the soul or preparation of the spirit. He says that we should be prepared to give testimony in those circumstances where it is asked of us. And that's not to say like when somebody grabs us by both shoulders and says like, preach the gospel to me. No, we're not saying that necessarily, but there are certain times during which it would be an omission on our part were we not to testify. And there are other times where we feel the prompting or the urging of the Holy Spirit to give voice. And this is what we mean by being always ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. So as a Christian, one should live differently. People should notice, you know, like, not that you're being like overly prudish and stodgy at a party, like, wow, you're such a joy killer. Are you a Christian? But, but people should see that you conduct your life in a way that is distinctive, right? This is like, this person's a Christian. And when that is the case, you should be in that, in that moment ready to give an explanation as to why you live differently. So certainly if like someone is maligning the faith, you should defend it. Right? If someone is asking apologetic questions, you should defend it. If somebody is giving bad explanations or saying like, I can prove the Trinity right here, you should say like, no, let's clear the ground so that people don't think that we believe for these silly reasons and therefore ridicule us. So there are very concrete like examples, but that's also like, we want to grow to become more and more responsive by the reign of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our life to always give testimony, whether we're on like a terrible frontier airlines flight and our back is giving out because the seats are so rough and ready. Um, and someone's like, hey, like, why are you wearing that around your neck? Or like, why are you dressed like that? Or like, why are you reading that book? Like, the, the opportunity arises, and it's in those moments that we should be responsive to the grace of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I think the, the, the line that stands out in this, in this reading is, is kind of right at the beginning. I'd, I'd always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. Um, that that our hope ought to manifest uh, the reality that we're Christians. Um, that our hope, um, our hope in, in what or in whom, obviously Jesus Christ, ought to be you know sort of worn on our sleeve. And as Father Gregory was saying, that doesn't mean um, being like the the killjoy at a party or being overbearing these sorts of things. But the hope that that hope in Christ ought to radiate. And um, yeah, and, and kind of thinking about where, where the church is now in, what, 2020 and kind of the state of faith and the state of the faithful, um, we can kind of lodge a whole list of complaints about this or that. But I, I do think one area that we, we I, I don't know, I think it's okay to complain sometimes that we ought to complain, but also ought to do something about it is, is the fact that we, we don't know the faith well. Um, 
throughout the and we don't teach the faith well um but that that's 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 kind of a problem right <laughs> it's kind of a problem uh it's 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 yeah it's a weird place to find ourselves at in modernity most people don't know the faith well and you can even look at silly silly polls and stuff you know from the care institute or that sort of thing about like i, I guess they're not silly because they're kind of sad maybe sad that like ask the question of, to catholics um, whether or not they believe in the real presence and it's like a staggering figure that of people who do not who catholics practicing quote-unquote catholics who do not believe in the real presence like ah oh, what do you like that's crazy um in a sense, though, in a, in a real sense that we have, as, as disciples of Christ, we have the real responsibility to sort of educate ourselves too, to continue to learn. We can't just say, well, you know, my CCD classes were terrible, which they probably were, but, you know, that's, okay, fine, so what are we going to do about it? Um, in order to give that answer, in order to speak well of the faith, we have to use our intellect. One of the two things that, that constitutes the, the Imago Dei, the image of God, our intellect and will, we have been given this ability to know God, this ability to know the things of God and the things of this world, to study them and know them well. And what's more is that through our confirmation, through the graces of, the, of confirmation, we've been given the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, the, the gifts of, of understanding, of knowledge, of wisdom, to know the things of God and to know them well. And I think it's a good practice for, for us to. Uh, to have a sort of elevator pitch, like a two-minute answer to the things of our faith, um, such so that when, when we're asked questions of why do you live this way, or why do you believe that, or why do Catholics do this or that, we don't find ourselves stumbling over our words and thinking, well, I don't know, I guess. But to have a quick, uh, ready answer, I mean, not to everything, you don't need to have a, your own sort of book on things, but to know the faith well, to ask questions, to study, to read, to sort of feed your brain, not just for the sake of becoming like an an, uh, an apologetic sort of like giant, but because remember that the will follows the intellect. So that the more we come to know God and the things of God, the better able we're, we are to love him. Um, and then as we love him more deeply, we want to know him more. It's, it's this, this relationship feeds. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a cyclical or self-feeding relationship that as we come to know, we're able to love better. And the more that we love, the more that we want to know. Um, we can't sort of rest on it, the idea that, you know, these things will just be given to us or that we will never have to answer for something for the faith. Um, it's our responsibility created in the image of God aided by those graces of the sacraments and the Holy Spirit to, to, to feed our minds, to be close to him in that way, so that we can bear witness, not only through our hope, but also through, through our words and, and our preaching, as it, as it were. This like, uh, reminds me of the conversation that we had in uh, Lent when we did the Back to Basics series about study. Um, this is an apology for study. Uh, which is to say that study is part of what it means to buy, be a dynamic Catholic. And that's not to say that to be a good Catholic, you need to be smart because you don't. Um, sometimes being smart can be a hindrance to being faithful because it becomes for us an occasion of pride. But God has given us minds with which to know. And so we should do what lies within our power to grow that capacity uh, and to have for the object of our knowing him. Um, so you don't, you know, you don't need to conquer uh, the material, but it is worthy to study, to have a, a healthy, um, uh, a kind of consistent habit of study, to read something theological uh, every week, okay? Maybe set aside at least an hour each week to read something theological. And it's not going to be that you memorize all of the different things, to know all of the things and have a ready response um, to all of the questions. Uh, nor do I think that one should 
have a habit of study for precisely that purpose, for the purpose of knowing all the things and having ready responses. Rather, the purpose of having a habit of study is <clears throat> to have, you know, like a, a kind of growth or a, a, a trajectory of increasing wisdom. So that way you have a greater sympathy with the things of God. So when it does come time to give, you know, a reason for your hope, you have the resources. You might not necessarily have the answers, but you have the resources and you have the certainty born of one who has been tending unto God for some time now. Um, and is not surprised that there are objections to the faith, nor is he or she scandalized by that fact, but rather like has the dispositions whereby to navigate the situation well. Um, so yeah, and I think that like, I, I think of here an analogy with pastoral Spanish, the second summer or, or the summer after our second year in formation, a lot of us had a, a, a Spanish summer and we were told that we should have pastoral fluency, um, which, you know, it's like saying you should be able to celebrate the mass and hear confessions and give a modicum of consolation. But the thing is, like, in order to hear confessions well and give a modicum of consolation, you need to be more than, quote unquote, pastorally fluent. You just need to be proficient, you know. Um, and so, too, with the habit of uh, with a habit of study and like a kind of unapologetic disposition, it do, it's not sufficient just to have the answers. Right. What we need is to see the interconnection of things. We need to see how they issue from God and return to God. And our minds need to be attuned to that reality so that we can testify to a whole thing, ultimately to a relationship into which others are welcome. So it's like, it's not, it's not enough to have like apologetic fluency. You just need like fluency with the things of God, but there's no upward bound to that. So what we need to be content with is a continual striving, something along those lines. Turning then to the gospel, the gospel from... Uh, from John. Here we go. Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to be with you always, a spirit of truth whom the world cannot accept because it neither sees nor knows him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me, and whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about the love of God, we often talk about the unconditional nature uh, of the love of God, and that's true. God loves us unconditionally. God loves us um, for for no reason of for no not because he has to for no reason of that kind of nature, but simply because he is love and his love um, is diffusive. It, it, it's such that it can't be contained. It's it's that love um, that knew us before all time, that created us, that holds us in existence. Is that is the offer of mercy? That is the invitation to divine life. That is that awaits us in beatitude. You know, it's unconditional love. But from another aspect, um, our Lord here puts a condition on, on his love. I mean, the word if is the first word of the gospel, right? Yeah. Well, the first word that Jesus speaks in the gospel. If you love me. Um, so not so much a condition on, on his love, but a condition on the fruitfulness of his love in our lives in response to our allowing him to love us, if that makes sense. Our Lord's unconditional love is on offer. But we, but that love doesn't force us um, to love him in return. I love the line from St. Augustine, um, I created you without you, but I will not save you without you. Um, 
our Lord, yeah, our Lord loves us unconditionally, whether or not we return that love. But in returning that love, we are, um, we're promised this abundance of life. We're promised the paraclete. We're promised divine friendship. We're promised all of these things. We talk about, when we talk about grace, we, we talk about grace building on grace, that there's a sort of snowball effect in the life of grace, that when we begin to cooperate with grace, we're strengthened in that and, and we're given more such that we can grow and such that we do grow in holiness. We become more prudent. We become more faithful. We become more charitable. These things become more natural for us. They grow. They become who we are. Um, and this is not something that's, you know, we're, we're force-fed, but something that we have to respond to. We have to make acts of prudence. We have to make acts of faithfulness, acts of charity. Um, but our Lord promises not to abandon us in this or not to leave us orphaned in this, uh, to to respond in a sense, as, as it were, to our response of his love, um, to continue to draw us deeper, just as with the, the, the previous reading, Father Gregory said, there are, you know, there are no upper bounds to, to our knowledge of knowing, of coming to know God. It's the same with love. There's no upper bounds to, to the outpouring of grace that's on offer for us uh, in virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. Um, but we have to cooperate with that. We have to put ourselves in his presence. We have to make time for him in our lives in prayer. We have to make time for him in the sacraments so that he can work on us. Um, so that the paraclete, the promised one, the advocate who is with us always, um, is, is free to transform us. Um, so I like, you know, like in, in what you say, you describe the Lord's initiative and then describe our response. And part, part of that response is keeping his commandments, which comes up here as a kind of refrain. And I think that this puts us in uh, the right state of mind to appreciate why there are rules, right? So a, a lot of times we lead with rules and as a result of which we can get like a crazy complex about following the rules. And then we abandon prudence and then we just become kind of blind rule following automata, which is the problem with casuistry if you've heard about that. But if you haven't, not important, we're just going to move on. Um, but here we see that following the rules is a response to God's self-offering of love. G.K. Chesterton is a school example where he says, if you take like, you know, like a group of kids and you put them on an island with very sheer cliffs at the edge and, you know, give them a ball to play with and you say, enjoy the island. Uh, for fear of falling off the edge of the island, they will uh, all kind of like huddle towards the center of the island. But he says, if you build like a low parapet around the edge of the island, a little wall, uh, then they will feel far more free to explore the entirety of the island. And the rules for us, uh, the laws, his commandments are just that. Uh, they delimit for us wherein we can hope to experience the love of God, and to remain constant therein. So they show us the place, the space in which it is possible to be friends with the Lord Jesus. And, and principally, what we are like thinking about, what we are kind of um, fixed on, is the Lord Jesus himself. So we're bound up in this relationship. It's a kind of like, you know, we're holding his gaze, he's holding our gaze, and in that gaze, things are made right. Um, but sometimes we just have a question as to like, you know, where does this fall in our relationship? Is this, is this okay? Is this not okay? And the rules give us indication as to where we can hope for divine life to perdure and where we know that the point beyond which it is extinguished. So it's not that like the church is an oppressive institution um, made for the, the promulgation of many rules, thereby to bind the consciences of those under her sway, but rather that she gives us rules as a grace, as a mercy, um, as a help to our growth in divine life so that we can know the limitations within which uh, our relationship with Christ can grow. I think the line too about, uh, our Lord not leaving us orphans through through the uh, through the through the Advocate through the Holy Spirit that He sends 
um, is sort of the, the hinge point on, on all this Sunday's readings. They kind of bind them all together that, um, you know, are, are as in the as we've been reading in the Acts of the Apostles, the, the coming together of the church and, and the early church, and then the, the hope that's manifest in us um, from St. Peter's letter uh, that allows us to sort of preach and gives us the opportunity um, prompts others to sort of ask what's going on there. You know, why does this person live this way? Why do they act this way? Why do they say these things? So that we can preach Christ. Um, all of this is because our Lord has indeed not left us orphaned because his life is alive in us. And, you know, over the past couple of weeks, over the past many weeks, I guess now having converse, I guess more recently having conversations with with people who have not been to mass in like two months, who are used to going to daily mass and sort of listening and, and hearing sort of the, I don't, I mean, suffering in some way, but just the sadness that's there, kind of the loss. There's There's been, I guess, in response, and at least people's response, kind of a, I guess, a, a strange kind of a tiptoeing around the fact that our Lord has not, that our Lord, that, that, that we are, um, bound up in the life of Christ through the sacraments and sort of like the line, well, I guess, you know, like the sacraments are important in my life and I kind of miss that, you know, it's like, well, yes, we're, the, the sacraments are of the utmost importance in our life. And, um, you know, that this it's principally through the Eucharist, um, that our Lord has not left us orphaned, that he's, he's present to us really, truly present to us. Um, these weeks have, have kind of left us without, without that. I mean, our Lord certainly has not left us orphaned, but has, um, the, the, uh, the relationship there has, has been altered, has been changed. Um, I think in all of that though, we have to, we have to hold on to the truth that, that our Lord is constantly at work, that our Lord is constantly with us, that our Lord is constantly, his grace is constantly on offer. Um, even if the circumstances for the time are, are changed. Um, he is not kind of, COVID-19 doesn't limit our Lord's ability to reach us and to transform us and to draw us into his love. It doesn't limit his ability to make us um, apostles and preachers of his word. It doesn't limit his ability to give us the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can continue to come to know him and to grow in our, in our knowledge and our love of him. Uh, and it also doesn't change his unconditional love for us. Uh, we, have to, we have to cling to that, even if it seems kind of a distant or a remote reality to cling to because it's, it's true. And it's, it's the foundation of who we are as Catholics and who we are as his disciples. Amen. Hallelujah. So with that, we will, we'll conclude this, this Sunday's Lexio with uh, the prayer after communion from this Sunday's mass. As always, we are praying for you. We beg your prayers too. We are remembering you at the altar. Um, feel free to, share this Sunday's episode or any of our episodes or the podcast in general with friends, family, people you think that, that might benefit from uh, considering uh, the things, the things of the Lord, the word of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty ever-living God, restore us to eternal life in the resurrection of Christ. Increase in us, we pray, the fruits of this Paschal Sacrament and pour into our hearts the strength of this saving food. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Take care, and God bless. Thanks for listening to God's Planet, a work of the Dominican Friars of the Province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.